I just want to show you something as we get started. Um, maybe you've seen this before, but, uh, but just uh, take a look at a, uh, a commercial that ran recently. What do you think? Uh, that's cool. What is it? It's the cover. The, the album cover? Yeah. It's good, right? Yeah, I know. I love, I love that. Oh, good. Maybe just can I, if I can give oh, one more tiny please. little note. Oh, please. Maybe. Okay. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I just feel like I see you more when I see you less. It's like, who is that? You know? So mysterious. Like, who is he? Where is he? Hmm? Where am I? You're right there. Yeah. No, totally. But I, okay. I'm like really jazzed up about that. Ah. It's good, right? It's something. I just really feel like it should be this one. I mean, the album is about my breakup, so. With me. Yeah, I know. Should we just ask Brian? Hey, Brian. Yeah. What do you think? For the album cover. Yeah, I like that. Feels iconic. We we could do that. Uh, we could also just do that. Feels iconic. Uh, I, I, some of you have seen this before, the shorter version of it. A few of you. I think it's been playing, I don't know on what platforms, but. Uh, like this is, this is kind of the age old dilemma of our lives and, and our faith, right? Is, is what, what to focus on. Uh, if, we, if we have the entire big picture, it feels like there's not a focus, so we always decide, okay, what, what should the focus be in order to tell what the story is actually about? Uh, because everybody has their own ideas, right? And, and most of the time, our ideas of where the focus ought to be matches the thing that benefits us and our biases the most. And it's just obvious to us that this is clearly the best focus, the best shot. Um, and it's like that in everything, but, but maybe nowhere more so than as we consider what God is like. Uh, this morning we're going to ask that question, and we're going to do a little bit of theological focusing, which is, which is fun. So a little, little theology this morning. Um, in partnership with the Jesus Collective, we are, which we are a part of, that's our, our network of churches, um, we're going to be taking some of the themes that uh, a bunch of leaders within our network have, have kind of worked on, and I'm going to be taking you through them in our own life pathway. Uh, so we're going to talk about five marks of a Jesus-centered movement, a Jesus-centered Christianity. And while that might sound funny to you, uh, it actually might be more radical than you think. Um, but what are the markers that help us rediscover, not in a new way, but in a way that has been around for a long time, the roots of radical Christian faith. What are the things that help keep us grounded in the real way of Jesus if we call ourselves Christians? So, so we want to rediscover our core um, that has often been lost 
over the centuries and changed by kind of the, the screen taps of Americanized Christianity. Right? Let's focus on this. Let's focus on this. Um, so, see, when people, when people think about God, and you can just do this right now, um, picture God. Weird, right? I don't know what comes to your mind. But the mental picture when people are asked to picture God is often, even though many of us have been around the church or Christian faith for all of our lives, is often some sort of an idea or an amalgamation of some sort of a thing that is different than a God that looks entirely like Jesus. Um, Rather, it's a God that looks a little bit like Jesus, but with loads of uh, cultural ideas about lots of other gods, which random Bible verses are excellent at supporting, right? Uh, it's, but it's like, it's like calling a caramel macchiato coffee, right? Like there might be some in there, but that thing is not coffee. Like it's mixed in, but there's a whole lot of other things that, that you know, sweeten the deal or whatever uh, for us. And, and so, so uh, there's just a lot of not coffee, in something like a macchiato. So, so gods of domination, gods of control, gods of retributive violence, gods of comfortable consumerism, people are, are captured by, by warrior portraits of God, of a God who's on their side, of a God who uh, thrives on an us-versus-them paradigm, right, where God is always in support of your culture war and, and your actual war. And the result of this kind of unholy mixture might be labeled Christian, but these gods do not look like the Jesus that repudiates violence and models co-suffering love. They do not look like a Jesus who empties himself in sacrificial love for the world. And so people look on, and they see us often creating God in our own image, and they're not surprised then about our constant bickering, or how what we do looks very little like love. Um, and and so, so this, this often makes people conclude one of a couple things. Either one, God's not even knowable. God's not knowable because people are just making up their own ideas about God completely. Or God is a product of our own making. All right? So God's either too mysterious to know God's character whatsoever, or God's just made up. One of the two things. And that makes me really sad, friends. Really sad. Because I believe on the deepest level that God is knowable and that God is beautiful. These assumptions kind of 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 what and who God looks like, they have real implications on our everyday living. It's not just mental pictures. If I believe that God walks around angry at every mistake that I make, then I am going to rationalize that attitude toward my children when they make mistakes. Right? Um, There are examples of this all over the place, right? We inherit views from all sorts of places. And on the flip side, we often create an image of God. Sometimes we're given an image of God, and then we live into that and rationalize ways of living that don't look like love. But sometimes, based on our own experiences, our traumas, our, our... victories, whatever you want to say, we then create God in our own image in that way too, right? Um, If things go well, you will convince yourself that God rewards faithfulness by giving you a smooth life, right? Um, And we see, (laughs) that one landed. Jeez. Uh, On the flip side, right, 
um, if you're deeply wounded by life circumstances, then it's very easy for your image of God based on what you've been told, God's in control of everything in every way, that you conclude that God's either evil or merciless, right? Or that you are. <laughs> if God is good and life is really horrible, then either God's not good or God is good and you are horrible and this is just the result of, of your badness, all right? Um, right? Or someone tells you that if God is powerful, that means God causes everything and then lightning hits your house and it burns and you try to figure out what on earth you did. These are real, these are real things. Um, and then we try to figure out what do we need to do to make God happy enough, to appease God. And again, there's Bible verses to back you up on all of these things, friends. It works quite well. The Bible is a beautiful, beautiful library of all sorts of one-liners to support whatever you would like to do. Uh, so, that's a problem, right? Because the question is, how can our views of God be so different if we all read the same Bible? Perhaps it's because we've never understood that the story truly has a singular purpose and focus. Um, that God actually came in order to set our views right. To actually show up in humanity and say, this is what I'm about. This is what I'm like. Not what you're mashing up together in your mind. So this week, our, our foundational marker, the first of our, of our journey, and it's really appropriate that we start this on the first Sunday of the year, but the foundational marker about rediscovering radical faith is that God always looks like Jesus and all scriptures properly read through him. And this has serious life implications. So this isn't just like mental headspace learning. God always looks like Jesus, and all Scripture is properly read through him, through Jesus. I want to propose something to us Christians, and that is that instead of viewing Jesus, and you've heard us talk about this, and if you're like, oh, this is review, excellent. Uh, that's how it sinks in. Um, but but uh, if, I want to propose that instead of viewing Jesus as the pleasant side of God, which is what often happens, right? We make up our list, and it's Jesus plus. Our faith is Jesus plus. Um, and so we got, like, Jesus is like the nice side of God, but God's also holy, and God's also just. And so we say, like, but God also needs to kick butt sometimes. Um, and, and the way Jesus kicks butt's very different than the images that we often use, if we're going to pull that out. So um, we must see Jesus as an accurate per, uh, picture of what God looks like, not just partially, but in every single way. Uh, sometimes maybe Christians think, I don't know, Jesus is too good to be true? Uh, maybe. Uh, that's, that's one reason. And, and so we need to supplement Jesus with other portraits of God we see elsewhere, including scriptures that seem to be in tension with the character of Jesus. Um, or sometimes we think, well, if our Bible is, is holy and inspired, then everything in it has to be understood equally. And so we kind of create like, like, um, like a transformer. I, I don't do transformers very well, so I might get this wrong. Like a transformer view of God that's got like different, or a Frankenstein view of God. That's one I can relate to. That's got like different parts sewn together that kind of creates this weird thing because, well, the Bible says in, in the Psalms like, that God's like this and, and in, you know, Moses says like this and then Jesus says like this and Paul says like this. So we put this together and we create this really kind of, this body that kind of is being pulled apart all the time at the seams. So, um, if that's a bad image, it wasn't one that I thought about beforehand, so I can find out later if that really falls apart quickly. <laughs> it falls apart quickly like a body that's sewn together with different images of God. Okay, 
the problem is that the scriptures themselves, friends, teach us not to do this. The scriptures themselves teach us not to do this. The Bible, if it's clear about anything, it's that Jesus is what we get when God finally gets revealed. Okay? John 1. Like, think about this. This is, this is the revelation of one of the disciples of Jesus after Jesus has come and uh, died, resurrected, and ascended, who has had and grown up with the entire story of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And he says, no one has ever seen God. So he understood that there was something fundamentally different about Jesus, <clears throat> and that all these images that we get of the Old Testament still weren't actually truly seeing God. All right? So no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is, check it out, do I have a little, oh, look at that, who is himself God, right? And is in closest relationship with the Father. It's this mystery. Truly God, but also in like oneness with God, has made him known. Oh, sorry, I forgot the end. Um, has made him known. We get Colossians, the early church, the Son, Jesus, is the, in, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And look at all of this. For in him all things were created, right? All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. This is the Jesus that came, like, after so many things had happened. <laughs> but the early church said, no, this Jesus was so fully God that, that Jesus was even, even before he ever lived on earth. He was before all things. He holds it all together. The cosmic Christ, we might say. So, so whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, the ultimate moment of God's heart and character revealed through self-giving love. Um, for in Christ, all of the fullness of the Godhead lives in bodily form. All of the fullness of God, over and over and over, you see these sorts of images. And maybe my favorite, my favorite, uh, well, one of them. In the book of John, Jesus is talking with his disciples, uh, getting ready to head in um, to the Passover weekend or during the Passover weekend in Jerusalem. And he talks about how he is going to the Father, but he's been with them all this time. And um, Philip pops up and says, like, there's been so much mystery here, but Lord, what we really, like, we will be at peace. We will stop asking questions if you just show us the Father. Like, that's, we just want to see. You, you talk about how close you are, how you, how, how you know the Father, how the Father's making things known, and we just want to see the Father. We want to see God. And Jesus looks at him, and he says, don't you know me, Philip, after all this time? He says, show us the Father, and, and Jesus says, I, I, I am. Don't you know me? Don't you get it yet? And, and, and to, to be fair, I'm not sure if any of us would get it either, right? Like, what exactly do you mean, Jesus? I mean, we've had thousands of years of theologians helping us come to peace with all the weird mystery about the, the Trinity and everything like that. Anyone who has seen me, how much more clearly can you be? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay. And, and it's like Jesus is saying, like, y'all keep thinking that I am the way to God, but I am the way of God. All right? I, I'm, not, I'm not the way to life with God. I, I am life with God. Like, if you are in relationship with me, you are living in relationship with God. There, there's, no, there's no new surprise coming. Everything you see in me is true of the Father, and everything that's true of the Father is true in me. So it matters that we understand that God is like Jesus, not just that Jesus is like God. 
And so Jesus and all of the witness of the scriptures point to this. And here's the thing. It required a complete reorientation of all of Jesus' disciples to even get there. So in, in um, John 2.22, um, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. All right, he, They recall all of his teachings. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So John 2.22 says that, that only after Jesus died and resurrected, finally could his disciples understand how to read the scripture. When we finally settle on, on who God is, we can then finally read the whole story correctly. And it becomes really beautiful and really exciting. There's, there's one example in a story after the resurrection of Jesus that reveals so much about how we can learn to read the scriptures. And it's in Luke 24. And uh, I'm not even going to put it up on the, on the screen. I'm just going to take us through it. Um, it's this really cool, kind of very heavy moment at first. So this is right after the resurrection of Jesus in Luke 24. We really made a jump from last week, didn't we? Um, we fast forward 30 years. So, um, so anyways, after Jesus has died, and some of the women who are disciples of Jesus have seen a vision of, of um, angels that say, hey, he's alive, and, and they, they take off, and they start to spread the word, and all of this... Um, everyone's just freaking out because they don't understand what it means. The disciples are kind of spreading out. There's all this mystery. There's all this disappointment. They don't really, they they think something weird happened, but they're not exactly sure at this point. Um, So anyways, what we get is we get two of the disciples. We don't know. A lot of people think that it's a married couple because of the the nature of the the process. It could have just been two friends, but it was two people who were part of the the disciple group of Jesus. On that same day, they were, two of them were walking to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. I love that. So they're just on a seven-mile walk to where they need to get. And, uh, and as they're going, they're talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Okay? So in the midst of talking about all that's going on, Jesus joins them, but they can't tell that it's actually Jesus at this point. What are you discussing together as you walk along? What are you guys talking about? Jesus says. And the the next thing that we tell is they stood still. So just imagine the weight of what's going on. So they're walking along. They're just talking like everything that's happened with Jesus. Someone says, what are you talking about? And they just stop. And then they say, in essence, like, well, were you living under a rock? How do you not know what happened this weekend in Jerusalem? We're talking about all these things. And he says, what things? And so they began, to, say, they began to, to, to talk more. And they say, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. Additionally, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Jesus said to them, How foolish are you and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus is walking with them and he says, Oh, this, 
this is all a part of the story. Let me, let me help you understand how to read it. And he begins in the books of Moses, the Torah. And he walks them through their entire Bible, <clears throat> which is not the same as ours. <laughs> it was the Old Testament, right? The Hebrew Bible. He walks them through the story. And he explains everything and he starts to help them see that the entire story was culminating in Jesus. And that Jesus, the story wasn't done yet, right? And so he's telling them all of these things. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on, I love it, as if he was going further. This says as if. Um, like, like Jesus like baiting them here. It's a great, great story. So Jesus is like telling them like a bunch of the story. They're probably like having this experience of kind of enlightenment, right? We're going to find that out in a minute. And then he's like, yeah, I guess I'll, I guess I'll keep, keep going. You know, another few miles. <laughs> Looking. And they're like, oh, please, um, can you stay? You want to stay with us? Are you in a real hurry? Whatever. And they ask him to hang around. And so, uh, so uh, he, he was acting like he was going to go further, but they urged him, stay with us for it's nearly evening and the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Here we go. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it and began to give it to them. And as soon as he does this, we're told that their eyes are opened. So as soon as Jesus breaks bread and shares it with them, all of a sudden they realize and see what's been going on. And they see that it's Jesus. And, they, and as soon as they recognized him, he disappeared from their sight. He was gone. <laughs> this amazing, mystical post-resurrection story. And then they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So, so we, get, we get a burning heart, hearts burning, and eyes opening in this story, right? So we get this physical manifestation kind of imagery of like everything just bursting forth. When Jesus explained the scriptures to us, weren't we just like our hearts just burning at, at, at understanding it all and seeing it all? So, so there's this incredible image, and then they immediately went back and told the disciples everything that happened, all right? So, so there's this, this kind of incredible thing that over and over again we see that when Jesus meets his disciples, he helps them see the entire story through a different lens, and it all of a sudden makes sense in a new way, all right? And we see this happening not just, um, like, even during the ministry of Jesus. I'll tell one more, one more story here, um, because it's really interesting, and I do, I do believe I put this one up. Oh, I was supposed to be up while I told the story. I'm going to give you a second for it anyways. All right. So there's one more story that I think is fascinating. And this is in the book of Luke. And, and my point of telling this story is to remind you that even during his life, Jesus helps his disciples in their interpretive journey over and over again. They're traveling through Samaria in Luke 9. They're spreading the word of the Lord and they get rejected. Shocker. Some people are not interested in the way of love and in God's rescue. And so anyways, um, when this happens, James and John, nickname Sons of Thunder, uh, kind of fiery folks, really into the, the whole take over the world for Jesus thing. So, so when they saw what happened, when they saw that moving through Samaria they are rejected, they remember another story that happened a long, long time ago in their Bible. And in that story, someone else was traveling through Samaria 
His name was Elijah. The story happens in, I believe, 2 Kings 1. Yeah. And, and, and Elijah finds out that the king of Samaria is trying to figure something out and he is going to other prophets to ask them, not to God, not to Yahweh. And he gets super angry and he gives a message because of their rejection. And I won't tell the whole story, but what ends up happening is on two different occasion, occasions, 50 people come to the mountain that Elijah's on and say, come down and talk to us and tell us more about this message that you've given from the Lord. And he goes, whoosh, and he brings fire down and he burns up 50 people twice. Finally, a third group comes. I wasn't supposed to tell you the whole story. Finally, a third group comes. They're like, we just want to talk. Seriously. And he's like, oh, okay. And he goes down. But anyways, so James and John, they've got this example of what clearly God does. What clearly God does in moments of rejection. And so they're like, oh, oh, Samaria, it's on. And so they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? And we can just, right here, guys, this is not, this is not superimposing anything. We can put a parenthesis right there and say, like Elijah did. Like Elijah did. But Jesus turned and rebuked them, saying, and the reason I have it in, in um, siphoned off is, Half of the early manuscripts that we have include this last saying and half don't. So half of our, Bible inter- half of our Bibles do and don't. Um, but it's the same concept either way. He turned and rebuked them, saying, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. The earliest manuscripts have it. You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Do you realize what Jesus is saying in this moment? <laughs> He's essentially saying, you know that story? <laughs> that story where, you know, that you want to copy right now? That wasn't really the spirit of God. Not in its fullest form, that's for sure. You don't know what spirit you are of, but it's not the spirit of God if you want to call down fire and burn a bunch of people. This shouldn't be so radical to us, but we spend a lot of time trying to rationalize why that's okay. And so, so we have to ask these questions when Jesus himself, over and over again, teaches us a different and a better way. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children are like their parents. That's the understanding in Hebrew. To share a name means you share a character. Okay? You were known through the reputation of your parents. So they're saying, if you want to be children of God, if you want to be like God, here's the way to do it. Love your neighbor. Pray, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son, which is a good thing, to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain, which is a good thing. It's about growth on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Aren't even the tax collectors doing that? He's saying you've become convinced through so many reasons that God is like this or that or that God works in these sorts of ways, but I am coming to reveal and clarify all of it. To be a child of God is to love your enemies and any other spirit is not from God. So, once Jesus' disciples grasp the paradigm shifts that are produced by Jesus, they never ever viewed the Bible in the same way again. The disciples' views of God are permanently changed because Jesus became their primary way of understanding who God was. And Scripture then became all about Jesus as, or, or God as revealed in Jesus and as the story pointed to Jesus. All right? Um, it, 
It's this sort of a, a shift in paradigm that leads to a conclusion like Paul's. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The book of Hebrews says the, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Okay? Like, there's no mistaking what the, what the early Christ followers understood Jesus to be. The center of everything, and everything had to be tested against Jesus. But you can see how the struggle to be faithful to Scripture and yet read it differently in light of Jesus, right? You can see how that exists, that tension. Um, and it's all over the letters of Paul. In fact, when Paul says that the law, which is how the Hebrews were faithful, and what, what the Old Testament was often shorthanded called, the law, when Paul says the law in, um, I think it's in Galatians 3, is just a guardian or a holding place until Jesus comes, um, the only way a trained Pharisee in first century Judaism could conclude something like that was if they had caught a vision, if, if the law is just, just a holding spot until Jesus, until true faith comes through Jesus. The only way that they could conclude something like that is if they had caught a vision that Yahweh has always been like Jesus. It just took time for us to get there. It just took time for people to be able to grasp it and understand it. Um, this means that, that Scripture at this point, only the Old Testament, right, needed to be read differently so that both Jews and Gentiles could now be included in the story of God and to see that we don't have to make a mashup of everything in order to understand who God is. Um, another example about how Scripture gets read differently in light of Jesus through Paul um, is his instructions to the Roman churches about how to respond to evil and to persecution. Paul tells the Roman house churches in Romans 12, you, you might be familiar with this, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse, do not repay anyone evil for evil. That's verse 17, 12, 17. In support of this teaching, Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, which is really interesting, of the Hebrew Bible. He quotes from Proverbs and he says, just like it says in the scriptures, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. The same Hebrew Bible that has Deuteronomy 19:21. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand, and foot for foot. But Paul's convinced that Jesus, that God always has looked like Jesus, so he prioritizes portions of Scripture that reflect that revelation of God. Paul doesn't get rid of Scripture. He doesn't minimize it. He simply refocuses the lens, right? He taps on the spot where Jesus is centered and shows that it needs to be refocused. So his reading of Scripture is not flat. Not everything has the same weight. Jesus-looking portions trump everything else before or after them. It doesn't mean that other passages are useless. They just don't dictate the ethics that Paul teaches his churches to follow. So, going back to the Emmaus Road and everything that we've talked about. Finding my clicker. Um, we can see that reading the Bible through Jesus involves, can involve three things. Um, the first thing is looking for Jesus as we read the story. So as you encounter the scriptures, look for Jesus. Not just look for prophecies about Jesus, but look for the very character of Jesus that we see emerging in the Old Testament. I talked about this a few weeks ago, and I, we do a whole life seminar on Old Testament violence and stuff that is a deep, deep dive. But you can see that images of God in the Old Testament often look very similar to everybody else's images of God in the ancient Near East at that time. Babylonian, Zoroastrian, all of these things, very, very similar, except a few moments where you can see something breaking through that's radical and different. So we look for those moments to be able to see the Spirit of God breaking through. Okay, so we look for Jesus as we read the story, both the, the longing for one to come and set things right, but also the actual character of Jesus himself.
We also listen, and this is the Emmaus way, right? So, we, so Jesus teaches them to look for him. <laughs> he, told, he taught them the, spirit, the, the scriptures as they concerned him. But we also listen to Jesus as we read the story. So they were hearing Jesus tell it. So this is a mystical thing, right? This is us saying when we, when we encounter the scriptures, we don't just do some good scholarly work and look for Jesus-y things to help us move toward God's heart. We actually say, Lord, speak through this to me. We, we say, Jesus, teach us what we need to hear and what we need to understand. And then we get to the point where Jesus breaks bread with his disciples. And, and what we see is that reading the Bible through Jesus involves living in communion with Jesus in addition to the story. So it's not just when you sit there and open the Bible, you pray and say, Jesus, help me, or let me look for Jesus-y things, or the character of Jesus. What we say is that when you are living in communion with Jesus, when you are sharing actual life with Jesus, all of a sudden, you begin to have the chance to see more clearly. Your eyes get opened. It's not just about the Bible, right? It's living in communion with Jesus all the time, in addition to the story. What I love about interpretation and, and techniques Brad Jerzak is a pastor and a writer of a book that's called A More Christ-Like God. And, uh, and he has the children at his church memorize John 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come to bring life and life abundantly. And so he says to them, this is I, meaning Jesus, meaning God's very character, has come to bring life. What steals, kills, and destroys? The thief. Who is saying this? Jesus. And Jesus is who? Jesus is God. Okay. So therefore... Take it to the Old Testament. God is like Jesus. If there is stealing, killing, destroying, that is not the gift or the ultimate nature of God. Not what we see in Jesus. So, what about when God does something, but it sounds like the thief? I'm just going to dangle the carrot. Sorry, it's too much time for this, for this morning. Um, but we do have a seminar that we do probably twice a year um, that, that takes you into an entire interpretive lens, and it's, it's pretty deep theology that we get into. Um, but for now... Let's remember that part of the scriptures being inspired is that God lets his children tell the story. That's why we get so many different perspectives over time. Part of the inspiration of the scripture is that God's spirit is actually working with different lives, times, places, and perspectives and cultures and eventually culminating in this beauty of Jesus. So God does let his children tell the story. That's a part of the freedom that we have. We don't just have a book that's divinely dictated. We have different authors from different times with different perspectives. It's easy to see, and it's beautiful. What an image that we get of all these people wrestling and seeking to understand God, and sometimes getting it right and sometimes not getting it right. But thank God we've got clarity in Jesus. So, oh, we got to stop destroying the goodness of God in order to create uniformity across every Bible verse. Instead of, instead, like the Bible leads us to, let's see everything through the truth of God in Jesus so that we can then enter the story and see the scriptures open up to us like the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Practically, if all this is true, friends, okay, if God has always been like Jesus, then perhaps it's not a fluke when Jesus uses his beatitudes to reverse the order so that those who are blessed are the poor and those who mourn and those who show mercy and those who are peacemakers in contrast to the Deuteronomistic blessings, which is in Deuteronomy 28, which forms the basis of this kind of devastating prosperity gospel that has plagued so much of our world and faith. And if God has always been like Jesus, being willing to put, um, being willing to, to walk into naked and painful death, right, 
for humanity who were sinners without exception, then can we let go of our desires for a genocidal God whose interest is in the defense of our political and racial and religious and nationalistic agendas? Imagine the difference it makes when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in response to the Pharisees questioning him about eating or drinking with the wrong crowd. The picture Jesus paints is of a God who is already longing to embrace and celebrate whoever we are in our not-yet-fully-there state, right? A God whose love seems indiscriminate and spreads even to those the world considers unworthy. If God has always been like that, that can then invigorate our church communities to reconsider which people who by virtue of cultural, social, economic backgrounds are unworthy of our time or energy. Imagine what the church's witness could be if we were perfect like our Father in heaven by loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us just like Jesus did. Can we be enraptured by a vision of God who accommodates our failures while working for, the, for what is best for us And can we become a place of rehabilitation and restoration instead of a place of retributive judgment and self-righteousness? There are so many applications when we truly embrace a God that looks like Jesus. As a church, we have failed if the image of God that we portray does not look like Christ. We have failed if our ways of relating to each other or organizing ourselves or expressing our views do not directly reflect the nature of the self-giving, enemy-loving, other-oriented, sacrificial God that is revealed through Jesus. You don't have to be afraid of the Bible if you know Jesus. Friends, just hear that. Because some of you, I think, have, have felt like you need to take a break from it all. And I get it. But you don't have to be afraid of the Bible if you know Jesus. It will spring to life and you will hear the whisper of the Lord revealing a grace-filled story that inspires you to live in a Christ-like way to build a Christ-like world. May God give us strength to continue with clarity and to walk like Jesus even when we don't have clarity. Amen? All right, Lord, uh, all different thoughts might be swirling around our heads. I pray that you simply move us toward your heart. Bring clarity where there needs to be clarity. If there's confusion that causes us to seek deeper, then help us embrace it. If it's something that paralyzes us, Lord, Help us to not get paralyzed by it and to be able to hold on to what we need to right now. Thanks. Amen.